This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Uh, today, uh, we're going to come back to our sermon series in Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. Uh, and the question that I wanted to open with was, what are your prayer requests? Uh, what are you asking God to escape from? What are your present sufferings that you are looking for a savior for? And where are you asking the Lord for peace? See, I think as good Christians, our answer to all these questions, if somebody comes up to you and they say, these are my prayer requests, this is where I'm looking for salvation, um, this, is, this is where I need salvation in my life, we would say, oh, salvation is found by following Jesus. And that would be a correct answer. But what does following Jesus look like? Uh, there's a lot of different examples for us in Christianity. There might be monastic Christianity, where we devote every hour to prayer and reading and formal worship. There's formal suit and tie Christianity, uh, where it's kind of like a business transaction. God gives us good advice, and we give him a little bit of our money and our presence on Sunday morning. There's crusade Christianity. There's something going on wrong in our culture, and we have to get together in this room and figure out how to fight it. Um, and so we spend our time doing that. There's nominal Christianity. Uh, one of my favorite words is called Christers. Uh, those people that attend uh, church services on Christmas and Easter. It's uh, paying attention to uh, the high holidays, and that's enough uh, because Jesus loves us so much. But I think one kind and variant of Christianity that really tugs at all of our souls, myself included, would be health, wealth, and prosperity Christianity. Now, maybe you've heard this phrase before, and if not, you probably can tell by just the way that I said it, that it would not be a good thing to necessarily embrace. <clears throat> and yet, so much of my life is lived expecting that God will remove my sufferings from me. I often live my life uh, that if I'm just faithful enough that I can escape the difficult things of this world. Uh, maybe the consequences of sin, um, but it might be something other than that, that uh, if I'm a faithful Christian, that means I'll be a diligent worker and that I'll therefore by necessity get the job that I've been working for. Our kids will get into the best schools, best jobs with the best promotions. And if God doesn't have me in the place where he wants me right now, uh, it's because he's only got something even better than I could have imagined for me coming later. And if he doesn't, well, maybe I just don't have enough faith to get it yet. This kind of Christianity, this health, wealth, and prosperity, uh, leans into this that God has the life that I've always wanted for myself. And God's just waiting to give it to me. This is the good news sometimes. The good news of following Jesus is what we hear sometimes from um, our culture and from what we hear from reading our, our, our Bibles and the conclusions that we make from growing up uh, where we did, we just assume that this is how God is going to work in relation to us. But that isn't how the Bible talks about following Jesus. This is not the good news as the Bible describes it. The Bible does not talk about following Jesus as an escape from our present sufferings but actually an embracing of them. In our passage today, Peter can explain, rationalize, and make sense of who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus is the one that's finally going to deliver them from all of their troubles, and if they follow him, Jesus will allow them to escape from their present sufferings and, uh, and, and oppressors. 
But although Peter's confession uh, is in word correct, Jesus has to correct what it means. So I'm going to ask again, what are your prayer requests? What are you asking God to save you from? What are your present sufferings from which you are looking for a savior? Where are you asking the Lord for peace? Because it is true that following Jesus, we will experience peace. The Bible does say that. But what we learn today is that it isn't peace because our suffering is removed, but we find peace when we follow Jesus and we find it in the midst of our sufferings. So if you would, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 18. Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others said Elijah and others, uh, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we have said that we have peace not because our sufferings will necessarily be removed, but we have peace when we follow Jesus in the midst of our sufferings. And so we're going to look at what it means exactly to follow Jesus. Um, And if we look at verse 23, it becomes very clear. Jesus tells us plainly, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, there's two things that they must do. They must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and then follow His assumption kind of is is that by denying yourself and taking up your cross daily, uh, that you will be following him. And so these are going to be our two points for our sermons today. For our sermon today, what does it mean uh, to follow Jesus? It means denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily. Now these can seem quite similar at first. And so as we look at denying ourselves, I'm going to say as far as this this passage is concerned at, at the forefront, denying ourselves primarily concerns our sin. It's sin focused. Uh, Verse 24 says that denying yourself often feels like you're going to lose yourself. Uh, It also often feels like you are dying. And indulging yourself in your sin often feels like you're gaining. Now, we see this in our lives, and we know this to be true. Um, When we uh, are enticed by sin, there's something in us that believes that we are going to gain something by it if we grab a hold of it. And to run away from that temptation actually feels like a piece of us is dying. When a coworker does a poor job, it feels good to point out to a boss, especially if it gives you a better position for that promotion. 
In our marriages, it feels good to store up a record of wrongs for us to make sure that we have leverage, that we have gained the next time that there is a fight. We're gaining leverage in either in situation by indulging in sinful practices. But the opposite is also true. Not reacting violently in situations where you are wrongfully accused feels a little bit like dying. We're tempted in that moment to react out of sin, to play the game uh, by the rules that have been laid out instead of by the rules that God has given us. The whole Bible, and Jesus included here, flips the script of what loss and gain looks like. Excuse me. Jesus says that whoever would save his life by indulging in his sin will lose it. But whoever loses his life denying himself of his sin will save it. And the one who denies himself may not gain the whole world, but he will gain, in some translations, his soul. Now, there's actually some clear logic in this. If you just read through this, I think even non-Christians would say, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I think maybe one place that we can most clearly see this in, is in uh, people that, that struggle with addiction. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Flight that's based on um, an airline pilot by the name of Whip Whitaker uh, who had a problem with drugs and alcohol. Up to the point where the movie starts, uh, he's been able to conceal it relatively well, uh, but his luck runs out when a disastrous mechanical malfunction sends his plane hurtling towards the ground. Now, Whip pulls off a miraculous crash landing that results in only six lives lost instead of the entire plane. And shaken to the core, Whip vows to get sober. But through the investigation of why the crash happened, it becomes increasingly apparent. Um, His addiction becomes increasingly apparent. The damage that he had done to himself, to others, and the risk that he was putting people at. You see, Whip's life was marked by destroying everything in its past. The indulgence that he could have in gaining what he thought was the whole world was destroying not only himself, but everyone else around him and putting others at grave risk. Although uh, many of us struggle with addictions such as these, I feel like focusing on them solely is somewhat of a cop-out. Because denying ourselves also involves denying ourselves of those little white lies. I remember after our first child was born, uh, Joaquin, a couple of months or something, Margaret and I were in grad school, and uh, we needed to stress eat for some reason. Uh, We we were worried about something, so I was sent to the store to buy double stuffed Oreos and candy uh, to get us through whatever we were facing at the time, and I don't don't even remember. And it was enough uh, that the checkout person at the counter looks at me and goes, is there a party? And in my shame and embarrassment, uh, I, in some sense, threw my wife under the bus. I was like, no, I've got a nine-month pregnant wife. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. The child was already born. <laughs> I was just hiding my own shame and embarrassment that I was about to eat an entire package of double stuff Oreos. We kind of look at this and we say, well, the damage may have been small. You know, we might say it as some kind of distrust between community building or something in these white lies. But we also understand that it's much, it can be much more insidious. We can withhold certain information from people who need to know how to do their job well so that they do worse at it. We can cover up our own errors to the detriment of others so that we can be perceived of as perfect. There's also the lashing out in anger when we feel that our pride is attacked. Husbands and fathers, do you feel disrespected and so anti-up in self-defense? When the foot goes down, is it going down to protect your family or is it going down to protect you? 
What about passive aggressiveness? Little comments here or there. Seeing if those chores are going to get done if you don't do them. We're called to deny these positions of heart. Deny ourselves of the sin that we think will protect us. Deny ourselves of the sin that we think will save us. Deny ourselves of the sin that we think will give us the whole world. And see, here's the thing about what Jesus says. Often our sins, our well-worn paths of pride, envy, passive aggressiveness, and anger are effective. They achieve results. We may for a moment, according to Jesus in verse 25, gain the whole world. They work. They're pragmatic but we forfeit ourselves. What is Jesus calling you to deny that you keep accepting for yourself? Is it your pride? Is it your greed? Is it your sexual promiscuity, whether physical or digital? Is it manipulation and power over others? Is it just a little bit more? Honestly, denying ourselves feels like self-sacrifice. But really, uh, denying ourselves of things that are kind of uh, immoral, unethical, uh, against the Word of God, would really just be being truly human, you know? Like, not sinning is actually, would be what it means to be truly human. And so, the denying ourselves is is something that actually makes sense beyond just ourselves. Uh, In Whip Whitaker's story, you know, I don't don't know where faith plays in in the real true story of of his life, Um, but... Uh, many people understand the necessity of being able to give up those things that do damage to yourself and to others. That pride, that greed, that passive aggressiveness, this is nothing new. But sacrifice is. There may be ways in which you can deny yourself that would make sense to the world and you by giving stuff away, uh, refraining from certain unethical practices. And although we perceive that somewhat as sacrifice, one commentator said it this way, um, to give is just to give something that you possess, but to sacrifice is to give something that you possess and will miss. Um, Being truly human uh, is actually a good thing. (laughs) Uh, Giving away those things, uh, denying those things that control our lives uh, would actually just make us truly human. Sacrificing ourselves for someone else is more than that. Our second point doesn't have to do with just denying ourselves of our sin, but it has to do with picking up our cross daily and following Jesus. Now, Jesus is described as having denied himself. Um, He had to deny himself of his heavenly prerogatives uh, to choose uh, to exercise uh, some of the authority that he was given at particular times that would have been sinful for him. And also, he was tempted, if you remember, many Sundays ago when we talked about the temptation of Jesus, uh, that he was also tempted and chose not to indulge himself, to let that part of him, deny that part of himself. But he also went further. Now, in, the, in our passage, you just have to read through this and you have to wonder a little bit. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Um, they have probably heard of and maybe witnessed some crucifixions. They've seen people with crosses. But Jesus hasn't actually died on the cross yet. For him to tell them you have to take up your cross daily would have been a little bit confusing. But he had just explained what exactly this meant in verse 22. In verse 22, he says, you're going to take up your cross just as I will because you will suffer many things just as I will. You will suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then be raised. Following me means not only denying yourself of these sinful patterns that you have in your life, 
Following me means also suffering, being rejected, and being killed. Now, we could probably spend an entire sermon on each of these, but let me just run through real quick the kind of suffering, rejection, and death uh, that Christ uh, would, would endure. Um, he would suffer the sins of others against him, spit on, punched, crown of thorns, whipped with, uh, whip, with a whip that had shards of glass in it to take out more flesh, nailed through wrists and ankles, left to suffocate naked on a cross in a view of a jeering crowd. This wasn't just death, people. This was humiliating, excruciating capital punishment. And this kind of capital punishment for an innocent man, when they tried him, they could not even find anyone to testify against him. And so the charges they brought against him were blasphemy because he told the truth that he was God's son. And Pilate, the guy who didn't even believe in God in the first place, who thought that the man was innocent and who could have done something about it, turned the other way. Rejection. He'd be rejected by his own people, his own pastors and theologians that should have known who he was. But not only that, he would be betrayed and rejected by his friends, left alone to die on the cross. Killed. The suffering and rejection would take his life. The life of the life-giving one squashed by those to whom he had given life. When Jesus told them in verse 23 to take up their crosses daily, the disciples probably could not have had a great idea of exactly what that would have meant. Even his description of his own suffering, they would have been a little bit confused. You see, the cross was a Roman cross. And death on a Roman cross meant the ultimate subjugation to the state. The very state that, that Jesus' disciples believed that Jesus came to tear down. You know, like their prayer, what they wanted relief from, what they wanted salvation from was the Romans. And Jesus says, pick up your Roman cross and follow me. To be subjugated to the state in such a way, to be crucified for their beliefs was offensive. Some of these disciples may have actually been actively involved in guerrilla warfare against the Romans, trying to usurp their foreign oppressors in their land. And then all of a sudden this Messiah shows up on the scene, the one who's supposed to deliver them, who's supposed to be the king that will set everything right. And he says, die at their hands daily. It was shameful, embarrassing, wrong. And that is why Jesus has to say in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will I be ashamed when I come. The Christian life is not about escape from our sufferings, perceived or real. It's about embracing them daily. To say anything less than this is to be ashamed of his words, to be ashamed of his suffering and unwilling to follow him. It's what's so hard about the temptation that we all have to fight and flirt with um, this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that if you just had enough faith, then things would go your way. Jesus had all of the faith in the world, the pure and most perfect faith, and yet he would not escape from suffering but would lean into it. And he didn't do it so that we could avoid it, but he says, I did it so that you can follow me into it. Take up your crosses daily. Now, what does this kind of sacrifice look like? Well, for Jesus, it meant that he sacrificed his life on behalf of others. 
He sacrificed in order to serve others. Now, we can't atone for sins in the same way that Jesus can. Our sacrifices don't cover other people's sins, but we do follow his pattern of sacrifice in order to serve other people. And not just other people, our enemies. Could you imagine sacrificing for that coworker that has done nothing but try to malign you? What about sacrificing for that neighbor or that acquaintance? What about losing that fight with your spouse? What about turning the other cheek? What about paying for your neighbor's fines? What about covering for a friend even though they really screwed it up? We are called to sacrifice daily. Now, there is one other aspect I want to be careful that I touch on here. Um, These verses are addressing uh, this sacrifice that we will have because of our Christian faith. It's persecution in some sense, right? Um, And I think that there are ways that we experience in our culture a little bit of persecution and sacrifice uh, on behalf of our Christian faith as we follow Jesus. Um, But unlike some people in in far-flung places of the world, most of us are not at risk of losing our very lives. It feels like a little death, um, but we're not actually being put to death for our faith. But sometimes I hear people say, when they read these verses of how we should sacrifice and suffer, that that is something that we should pray for. And it usually goes something like this. Lord, I ask that we might have a greater persecution in our church so that you might weed out the sheep and the goats, that we might be more, more pure, more faithful. As if we're being super holy by asking the Lord to sift us in this way. As if we should pray that we might be persecuted so that we can be stronger. But the Bible never once says that we should pray like that. And in fact, Jesus prays against Satan sifting us like wheat. And do you know why? (laughs) Because Jesus is gentle. The Bible will describe God as not breaking a bruised reed. He desires that all come to repentance. Those that have um, a barely burning wick, he desires to kindle into full faith, not squash them out. Jesus doesn't have some sort of fight club mentality of toughening up the church. Although it may be true that God has so ordained that at some point in time we face persecution for the beliefs that we hold, God will meet us with grace in that day. And that is the same thing that we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that face real persecution for their faith. We don't pray that they would have more of it so that they might be more purified. We pray that God might give them the grace to stand up underneath it. Christians face sufferings and persecutions differently than the world does. We pray for deliverance from them, just like Jesus prayed for deliverance from his own sufferings. But when we wake up in the morning and our crosses are lying there, we embrace them knowing full well that God is with us even there. That nothing can separate us from Jesus because he went that far. The Christian life is about sacrifice. This side of heaven, our lives are about embracing our sufferings in such a way that the world is ashamed and a little bit embarrassed by how we do it. 
It's about looking death full in the eyes and living our life according to ultimate matters. We're not pretending that suffering doesn't exist, uh, nor are we expecting that God will necessarily deliver us from every aspect of suffering. But having prayed that God would deliver us, we trust that the suffering that he has us face this day is the very suffering that he has built us for. Even if this suffering takes our very last breath, and you know why this isn't despair for Christians? Because <laughs> it sounds, sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? I get up here and I'm like, hey, you know what following Jesus is going to be? It's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like dying every single day. You want to know why Christians can embrace suffering and show you their tear-streaked faces? Do you want to know why they can be rejected by the world and be ashamed and still find joy? Do you want to know why they can be in prison and sing hymns? Do you want to know why that we can hold beliefs that the world finds offensive? It's because we don't believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel says, follow Jesus so that you can avoid experiencing suffering. The Christian gospel, the Bible says, you have already been given the utmost peace. Follow him wherever he goes. Peter and the disciples were at risk of seeing the Christ of God, this, this wonderful proclamation that he had just made about who Jesus was, as just a messenger of health, wealth, and prosperity news. He was trying to separate the good news of the gospel from the sacrifice of suffering that it comes with. He thought that peace was available by way of Jesus instead of in Jesus himself. And we um, are tempted to do the very same things. We need to not just see Jesus as the messenger that good things are about to happen to us, as a fortune cookie or a horoscope that says your stars are aligning. We don't need to see Jesus as just a good example for us to follow so that we might experience some measure of peace in this life. We need to see Jesus as the one who denied and sacrificed himself for our sake. And he didn't suffer so that we could run from suffering or just to provide an alternate route for us to escape out from underneath it that is devoid of pain. He died and showed us that even there he would not leave us. He died and showed us that even in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of pain and sickness, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of death, in the worst kind of suffering you could possibly imagine, he is with you. He has gone before. And he gives you peace because he shows you what that fourth thing is that he experienced. You see, there was suffering, rejection, and death, but there's also resurrection. And he is the first fruits of resurrections, made promise after promise. And never once in any of, of this book can you find Jesus failing in any of his promises. And he makes these promises that even if these sufferings take your very last breath, even if it doesn't just feel like dying, even if it is actually dying, I'll come find you. You will not be there forever. See, the reason that we don't deny ourselves, that we try to protect ourselves, is that it feels like death, and death doesn't feel good. Uh, death feels um, permanent, feels unescapable. It feels like there's no way out. And so we do everything that we possibly can to avoid feeling like we're dying. 
We posture at our jobs. We lie, cheat, and steal. We play the silent treatment. We hone our weapons because we are honestly 100% convinced that our lives are at stake. And Jesus says, your lives are no longer at stake. I bought you. You are mine. Even there, I will rescue you. Our response to this declaration that Christ is the Savior, not just of um, present sufferings, which he will make right someday, but of the utmost suffering that death is inescapable. For Jesus to come and declare, I have defeated that age-old enemy, that thing that you should be most afraid of, and although you try to block it out, the thing that you are truly most afraid of, our response to his declaration that I have defeated it is to say, my life belongs to you. I will follow you wherever you tell me to go. And he says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. We don't do these things so that we can experience peace later. We don't do it to earn peace later. Christians embrace our present sufferings because we have already known the fundamental peace that is in Christ crucified and resurrected on our behalf and that he will not fail his word. Because Jesus embraced suffering and death for us, because he defeated it for us and removed our fear from it, we not only um, are able to lay down our sins and those things that are going to protect our lives, but we're able actually to sacrifice for the sake of others because we know but that is where Jesus is. Because Jesus is our peace, we follow him. Now, uh, Jesus intended that we don't just uh, hear uh, th these promises over and over again, um, but that he actually gives his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, for us to remember and taste and see that his promises are true for us. Not only that it is paid and it is finished, by his shed blood, that death is actually defeated, but also the promise to taste and see that he is coming back for all of us. The way he wanted to make this promise when he's with his disciples, the night that he was betrayed, Christ instituted uh, this sacrament, is what we call it, with bread and wine. And he took the bread and having blessed it, he broke it, and he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering in his name, now give it to you. And he said, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which was broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat this and remember what I have done for you. If you've already found your peace in Christ, then this table is for you. Uh, this is not our denomination's table or the church's table. It belongs to um, everyone uh, in, in everywhere, in, from anywhere and around the world uh, who looks at Jesus and says, he paid it all and he is true to his word. Uh, if you're not sure that he actually paid it all, if you're not sure he is who he says he was, if you're not sure that um, he's really giving any peace, um, I'd ask you just to refrain from this section of our service. Uh, to not declare something with your outward actions, is usually how we say that, is not an inward reality. 
And the inward reality is this, that Jesus is our peace, and he is faithful. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and we can go to these two serving stations um, on my right and my left. Uh, we will have gluten-free options. Just notify your server if you would need that. And then there is red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. Um, if you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform these common elements uh, to serve their supernatural purpose that Jesus said that they would have. Allow us to partake in faith and taste and see that no matter what sufferings we are experiencing, even today, whatever comes in the future, that you are there with us, that you went even into the depths of death and you have not left us nor forsaken us. Allow us to rest in our promises and in your promises to us this morning. Amen.